Okay, so we talk quite a lot about um, discussing is it good to be talking about the future of education or not. I'm quite glad to be talking about the future because as a campaigner, and Owen will know this, a lot of the time you're just talking about what's wrong and um, what governments have done wrong, what politicians have done wrong. And in education, I would argue they've done quite a lot wrong, particularly over the last 20 years, which, which I've been um, looking at. So I'm quite pleased to be able to say well, what could we do differently and where could we go in the future? So if there's one headline and one thing I'd like you all to take away from my 15 minutes, but do listen to the rest. I'm going to say it now, but do listen to the rest. <laughs> it's it's that, that now, partly because of the crisis that Priya was talking about, now is a very good moment for us to think and plan and talk about actually moving our education system into the 21st century, rather than going back to the 20th or even the 19th, as some politicians who shall remain nameless would like us to do. We're only a fifth of the way through the 21st century. Um, you don't have to be a mathematician or very technological whiz to work that out. So we've still got time, but that's what I would like us to do. Now, I recognise that this subject is actually trickier. You can say, let's do this, let's do that, let's reform. But you know, at the heart of it all is class anxiety and class ambition. And never underestimate either of those things. And I think one way to think about it is that question, where did you go to school? Now, when you say, where did you go to school, you're not actually asking, what do you know? Or you're, you might be asking, what do you know? But you're also possibly asking, who do you know? And if you compare that to questions about health, which is our other great public service, and our, you know, NHS is a cherished institution, do you ever say, where did you have your leg operation? Who else was in the ward next to you? Or do you ever say, did you get registered at the GP for specially gifted patients? You never ask those, those questions. So I think it's an example about how our education system is riven with all sorts of things about who we are and how good we are, whereas health and our health provision is not. Now, I want to honour the spirit of 5 by 15 tonight and do something I never normally do, which is partly why I'm a little nervous, is to just tell you a couple of personal stories about my own life and why I feel so strongly about it, this subject. And the first thing I want to say is that the only really unusual thing about me in terms of my educational story is that I started out in private education. Boater, gingham dress, skipping down, came out the house, turned right, skipped down the road to a small prep school. The prep school that George Osborne later, quite a bit later, he's quite a bit younger than me, went, went on to. And there came a point, it was the six, 60s and 70s, where comprehensive was, reform was being brought in. And my parents thought, we think this is a good way to run an education system, we believe in it, and if we believe in it, we're going to send our children to these schools. So myself and my three siblings were taken out of private education and we were sent to local schools. And that's quite unusual because often people come out of private education because their parents run out of money or they come out of private education because they've done something really bad. And it was neither the case. Also, it was very controversial. I do my mother's archive, she died a long time ago, and letters from people saying, don't sacrifice your children, don't sacrifice your children. It's up to you to decide if she did sacrifice me, but uh, don't, tell, don't, don't tell me in the, in the bar afterwards. Um, 
I, learned to, I went to a, what is called a pioneer London Comprehensive, Holland Park. It's still quite an iconic place. It was opened in 1958. All the... Um, Wealthy Kensingtonians who lived around it tried the Camden Hill Preservation Society, tried to stop the school being built. They included the South African Embassy and the widow of the governor of the Bank of England. They didn't succeed. The school was built, and it was quite extraordinary. I was looking at a film earlier today, sort of BBC received pronunciation kind of presenter, and he's going, here is Holland Park opening. It is a marvellous place with wonderful facilities. And then he said this very interesting sentence right at the end. He said, finally, with a school like Holland Park, our country is moving into the modern world. That was 60 years ago, and we're still struggling over this issue. Two things I learned from school. Well, I learned lots of things from school. It, actually, let's say three things. I had really first-rate teachers, partly because it was an idealistic time, and they were formidable. And I had a brilliant academic education and, actually, a practical education. We did domestic science. It was a very gendered time. Girls did domestic science. I still remember the kedgeree that I made, and I have never inflicted that kedgeree on any member of my... <laughs> and there's a number of friends and family in the audience that will know that that's true. Um, had a brilliant um, education, but I also... Oh, and the second thing, which picks up on Priya's point, and which I want to make, is the past is always in the future. There's so much about our education system that has been changed, and memories lost, which actually people are now arguing we need. And one of those was freedom for teachers. Teachers had a lot more freedom in an earlier period, and they've been much more controlled in the last 30 years. So look back at that history, that's interesting. But also I had a great social education, or a human education. 26 languages spoken in the school, which is actually not that many compared to many um, London comprehensives. My daughters went to a school where there were 77 languages spoken. Um, there were incredible mix of people there. There were some well-off people. There were some children of politicians, which I have to put my hand up and say, yes, I was one of them. But there were also the children of um, people who worked in shops, people who worked in the local embassies, the local postmen, musicians. It was just an absolute spread of people. And at points, I found it quite a shocking experience. So I had a, a girl in my class called Jane. Jane often came to school barefoot. Now, remember this was the 70s, people did go about barefoot because it was a kind of bohemian time, but that was not why Jane was barefoot. The family had no money, they lived in, a mobile home is not the right word, but they moved about and her parents would drop, her mother or father would drop her at school, there were many siblings, and that was where she lived. That shocked me. And I never lost that sense of people around me having nothing or much less. Um, I was, had a crush on a friend of my older brother, and uh, I remember him telling me quite casually, he had a big family that came from Notting Hill, and his oldest brother was in Parkhurst Prison for a crime that I'm not um, going to tell you about. But again, I thought, my God, you know, this is all the world, and I'm, I'm in this world. And when, the biggest thing is, when I look back at my time at Holland Park, I realise that it prepared me for the London that I still live in now. And if I'd stayed at my prep school, which was in some ways, you know, I don't really remember it, but I think it was happy and competitive, I would have been well prepared for pre-war London. I mean the Second World War, because I know a lot of you, the war will be the Iraq War. I'm talking about the Second World War. But I just think I have to make the point, I'm not arguing that comprehensive education is about a social mix primarily. It's an important educational principle, and it's still a battle we're having now. Because in 1944, the, uh, the great... 
act that set up universal secondary education in that great uh, Attlee government that David talked about that brought in the NHS. Universal secondary education, but two problems. Didn't deal with private schools, which have gone on to become very powerful, and set up the 11 plus, an utterly flawed test that divided the nation down the middle between those who were deemed to be clever, who were largely the middle class, who had much cultural capital, to take Kate's point, and the rest who were deemed to be failures. A completely rotten system. And yet, Theresa May has many problems on her plate. The only domestic policy she has is she wants to bring back grammar schools. Nigel Farage wants a grammar school in every town. I rest my case. <laughs> I feel I'm safe to say that here. Um, so a second point, so comprehensive education is about giving all children access to a broad and balanced curriculum, the same qualifications and giving them the same chances, while also understanding that every child is different and they will not do the same thing or live the same life. But it's that principle that's important. The second uh, experience from my, my own life that I want to bring here is when my own daughters, who are now in their early 20s, were at primary school. A large primary school, 10 minutes from where we live, in Brent, the most diverse borough in Europe, and a great school and a great mix again. It wasn't quite so true in the secondary school because then all sorts of other things kicked in and parents moved away. But great primary school. And in the late 1990s, as we all know, global conflict began. And lots of families came from Afghanistan and then later from Iraq and more recently from Syria. And what the primary school did was build the first ever dedicated refugee centre, which is on the site of Salisbury Primary School, and it's called Salisbury World. And they would help both the children and the parents to integrate in the society, in the school. They'd help them with benefits. They'd help them through um, the bureaucracy of... And uh, there are lots of children that are in my children's classes who arrived frightened, poor, couldn't speak English, and have gone on to do an amazing array of things. So one boy who was in my daughter's class, I looked him up on LinkedIn today, and he's now a tax advisor and has this wonderful thing, the best things in life are tax-free. But, you know, um, which I, I can't say I agree with, obviously. So, look, I want to come to the future, that bit about the future. I think this is a moment to have a national conversation about the system we want to have in the rest of the 21st century. We have a crisis in education in many ways. We also have the most extraordinary ideas, most extraordinary creativity, as Priya and Kate's contribution showed. Also, our politicians have shown us that they're not very good until the 11th hour at having a conversation. I'm trying not to use the Brexit word, but you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> having a conversation and finding underlying consensus. And I think there is a lot of consensus about what our education system could be like. And here are the five principles. God, I've put four hand up. Five, I can count, I have got maths GCSE. Five principles that I would contribute to that conversation. First, let's stop arguing about comprehensive education and find the ways to make it work. We know it can work from some of the top performing global systems. Let's fund it properly. We've got a funding crisis. Look at America. We don't want to go that way where teachers have second and third jobs. Not only let's fund it properly, let's fund it really generously. Michael Gove gave Sally Coates 
um, asked her to go and look at prison education. £30,000 a year, the cost of a high-end private education to keep someone in prison. Why don't we invest it earlier on? For special needs, for mental health help, for everything. Let's tackle inequalities, as David has talked about, but also in the state system. Let's get creative. You cannot have a good school system without creativity at the heart of it, and that's been squeezed out. And lifelong learning, that's my final point. And that's very much the argument of the National Education Service. Early years education, which somewhere like Finland, which Alex talked about, they don't start school till six or seven. And they play-based learning, not early ersatz academic learning, learning how to relate. It helps close attainment gaps, to use a bit of jargon, which I'm trying not to. And it's a really important way to start adult education. We spend 95 plus percent of our education budget on naught to 21. Look, I hope I live to 80. I hope you all live to 80 or 90, and I think you probably will, looking at this audience. My friend Holly's grandmother did her first humanities degree at the age of 82. I think that's one way not to pay back your student loan, actually. <laughs> but, but, but I want that. We, we need more of that, and we need funding and a structure in order to make that happen. So I am going to end now and to say it is the right time to have that conversation because of these amazing people working in education and our understanding of what we need to do. And as I say, I think there's a consensus growing about what a good system looks like. But also, we can't afford not to do it. We're living in toxic times where we know what religious divides mean, what ethnic divides mean, and what class divides mean. If we want to learn to live together, which we do, we need to learn to learn together. Thank you very much.